The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's Friday. So let's get going with a patented, highly anticipated Duff McKagan joke. Good week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Hey, listen, uh, my friend just had twin boys. He named them Amal and Juan. Uh, funny thing is he carries one picture, uh, not of both of them, just of one of them. I guess he says because once you see Juan, you've seen them all. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, thanks to Duff for bringing the funny every Friday. Love those jokes. Duff and Guns N' Roses are back at it on the road. They're playing in Singapore tomorrow night, Saturday, November 12th. And Fozzie's on the road. We'll be at the O2 Academy in Bristol tomorrow night on November 12th. We hit Glasgow on the 13th for probably the biggest show of the tour. And we're going to close it out in London on November 14th at the Islington Academy and it is the tour has been our biggest one ever in the UK. So much fun. Crowds have been insane. And then we head to Australia on the 30th doing our legendary VIP meet and greets as well in all of those countries and shows. Still a handful of tickets left. Just go to FozzyRock.com. And if you aren't in the UK or Australia, then come see Fozzie on the Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Rage at Sea. Four Leaf Clover. The lineup on this ship is stacked. We're adding new guests every single week. We got comedy, music, live podcasts, legendary Hall of Fame wrestlers, paranormal shows, and of course, AEW will be on the ship. And we're going to have the inaugural crowning of the Jericho Cruise Oceanic Champion. The very first one ever happens on the boat. We're also, for the first time ever, going to our own private island, Great Stirrup K. Book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. We just added Eddie Kingston, Wardlow, Swerve Strickland, Jade Cargill, Danhausen is going to be there. Dante Martin is in the Jericho Oceanic Championship Tournament. And, of course, the entire Jericho Appreciation Society will be there. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and find out who else is going to be there to give you the vacation of a lifetime, for sure. All right, so today we're doing some true crime with John and Jamie from True Crime Cast. They return, and I recently watched Dahmer Monster the Jeffrey Dahmer story on Netflix and thought it might be interesting to see what the series got right and what they missed about Dahmer's diabolical story, gruesome, and to get more details about Dahmer's early life and childhood, see what his relationship with his parents was like back then, and then talk about some of the early warning signs that were maybe missed that factored into him becoming one of the worst, most vicious serial killers of all time. We could talk about that evolution from killer to cannibal killer 
and go into more detail about his capture, his childhood, his trial, and of course, his eventual very violent death in prison. So here we go. Let's get to Jamie and John and the diabolical story of Jeffrey Dahmer right here on Talk is Jericho. All right. So one of the uh, most talked about shows right now on TV is uh, Dahmer, of course, with Evan Peters playing Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix. I've got the guys from True Crime Cast back here again. And I thought, what a perfect topic for us to discuss because watching this show, Dahmer's one of those guys that we always hear about, but you don't really, like, I didn't really know a lot about it. And then when you watch the show, just how sick and psycho this guy was, possibly one of the worst serial killers of all time. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And you watch this show and you think they have to be making some of this up because it's too crazy, but it's not made up. It is actually pretty spot on to what actually happened did you guys know this kind of the story obviously have you talked to a Dahmer before on one of your shows we have and I, I i think we talked about this the other day chris we've recorded almost 500 episodes of true crime cast the only time i've had to stop in the middle and take a break was the Dahmer episode just really? because of how nauseating and again the, our first case with you was nathaniel bar jonah and he had a kid's cookbook but Dahmer, right. the things he did even surpasses that quite a bit i think I had to just, stop watching the series like after episode three because it was just so messed up. Well, and that's the thing; it, it is, and, that, and once again, I mean, messed up is is taking it lightly, but just it always amazes me. And we've talked about this time and time again how these guys are able to get away with this. It's just like it's almost like you're hiding in plain sight and doing these awful crimes and and, and murders and mutilations and torturing, but in a apartment building. It's not like he's even doing it in a you know, in the middle of nowhere, it's actually in an apartment building with, with neighbors, cops are everywhere. I mean, it just blows my mind how he was able to get away with this for so long. And there are so many opportunities for t- police to intervene and they don't. And some of the things even happen in his grandmother's house. Like, yeah, you're supposed to be on your best behavior at Mamaw's right. house, dude. And this guy was killing people in the putting in the basement like. The dude is so sick. We'll get into it more. He was also drunk the whole time. Usually when somebody's inebriated, they're less likely to execute really? their plan. Yeah, he, he was constantly drunk. Um, so it's amazing that he didn't slip up and get caught beforehand. Mind-blowing. And working at a chocolate factory the whole time, like freaking Willy Wonka, like uh, holding know, down a job like, while murdering like, people. Like you said, it's it's almost comical. And obviously, there's nothing comical about it. But he, like you said, he works in a – who works in a chocolate factory? Nobody. Nobody's ever worked in a chocolate factory ever, except for Willy Wonka and freaking Jeffrey Dahmer. You yeah, know, yeah. I think you're unbelievable. right. Both they might be kids. one of the same. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, let's kind of go in. And, and one last thing I want to say, too, is just his his father, the Lionel Dahmer, and just you feel so bad for this guy. But to the end, he like just loves his son and is pulling for his son. But even the relationship, like he even had, and you can blame it on the mom or whatever, but he had a pretty good family unit. Wasn't like he was getting beaten or whatever. Like his his parents got divorced, you know, big deal. So did mine. Sure, maybe yours did as well. But it's like I just couldn't believe the whole story behind that. So let's kind of get into the whole tale of 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 this embodiment of evil, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, you're right. His childhood wasn't like a lot of the killers that we usually talk about. Right. It, it wasn't super super broken. A ton of abuse that we know of. But he was born in May of 1960 in Milwaukee. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. His parents were Lionel and Joyce. Now, his mom did have a pretty difficult pregnancy with him, 
She was having seizures and they gave her some medications that I don't think we would see somebody get today that was pregnant. I know we're super careful with prenatal care. They actually gave her morphine for some of her uh, pregnancy issues and other barbiturates to help her sleep and to make her seizures subside. And while we don't know that any of his behaviors, any of his issues were a direct result of that, obviously it's not ideal. I don't, I don't think we would see that at all today. In my day job, I'm a social worker. And if moms take this kind of drug while they're pregnant, they often have to wean the baby off these because they're oh. born addicted to substances. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. And in 1962, the family moved to Iowa so that Lionel, his dad, could pursue his doctoral studies in chemistry. In 1966, they moved to Ohio. That was where Jeffrey was in first grade at the time. Now, his teachers reported that Jeffrey claimed that he was being neglected, and some believe that was because his father worked so much and his mom was suffering from what appeared to be severe symptoms of depression. And he was getting more and more involved in school, and later that year, a brother was born, and his name was David, and Jeffrey actually got to name his brother in hopes of helping him feel more involved with a family and to kind of get him more loved and valued. Yeah, both his parents were around. His dad was super busy with graduate school. He ended up getting a doctorate in chemistry. Like his dad was super smart and super driven and very disciplined, which is, again, kind of uh, the the sad part of that story as you see the the father in the show. The same year his brother was born, Jeffrey had a pretty severe medical issue. Now, sometimes, again, with killers, we see trauma when you're young. Sometimes it's a head injury. Instead, this was a double hernia in his scrotum, and he had to have an operation to correct that problem. Even though that doesn't sound like it would have an effect, his father and other people around said that after the surgery, he was almost like a, a different kid. So leading up to the surgery, he was so worried that they were going to try to castrate him or, or mm. cut off his testicles that it really freaked him out. And after the surgery, he was serious all the time. He wasn't as, as playful as a second grader would be, that he kind of moped around, took everything really seriously. And again, nothing about that surgery says this is going to impact you psychologically unless, I don't know, there's something else going on before that that's going to lead to some kind of issues. I don't get this one, man. Like. How many normal routine surgeries are held every day in America, and none of them make you grow up to be a serial killer? So I don't know right. what happened here or why his personality was different after this. It really remains a mystery to me. There were some reports of potentially a neighbor getting involved with Dahmer as a kid uh, sexually. But again, th there's so many rumors around Dahmer, too. And I'll, I'll get to some of that at the end, like things that say people say that he did or said that we really have no facts about, but said that he was involved with another male neighbor sexually when he, when he was younger. And then when he gets to junior high, that's when we see him starting to get more curious about anatomy, especially with animals. He would regularly inspect and dissect animals, sometimes like fillet the bones off of them just to see the mm. structure of their innards. Now that is a point, like we talked about the McDonald triad, the three things we see with Serial killers, arson, wetting the bed beyond a reasonable age, and violence toward animals. And he definitely checked that animal box off. Just to jump in here, so you're saying three traits that kind of are a red flag for serial killers. You said arson. Yep. And you mentioned, you know, obviously killing animals, but but wetting the bed, what is the the reason with that? A lot of times wetting the bed is associated with trauma, specifically sexual abuse. I see that all the time that if a mm. child's wetting the bed, 
it is often triggered by some kind of sexual abuse. So if gotcha. he did experience that, you know, in particular, it's really stacking trauma on top of trauma. Things weren't great in the home. They're not as bad as some things we've seen. Right. But it's still traumatic. And then sexual abuse, that mm. plus bad genetics are just really stacking the deck for this kid. And we know how okay. driven his father was academically. And Jeffrey was the same. He was really into chemistry and he got a home chemistry set to do some home experiments. And except instead of just turning blue and red liquid into into purple liquid, he's melting down parts of animals and using it to find out how he can get to the bones and what happens when you put an animal heart in a particular chemical. So it's, it gets pretty graphic pretty quickly in middle school as far as searching anatomy. And, and once again, nobody is, you know, we're talking about this right now, thinking about how weird it is. Nobody's doing anything about this. Nobody's thinking how strange this is. Yeah, I, I think it's just whispers. It's rumors around the community of, man, yeah. Jeffrey's weird. He does this or that. And right, I mean, all, right. all three of us are fathers. I feel like if I got wind of that, especially doing a podcast like this, that's immediate, strong intervention. Sure. What's going on here? How can I help? But he didn't get that ever. Guys, I got a confession. So I've been researching this all weekend. Yesterday, I took the top off the Jeep and I was cruising my daughter around. We saw a freaking decapitated deer on the side of the road. And she's like, this is awesome. And I was like, oh, you're going to turn out to be dumber. <laughs> it is not awesome. You hate animals. We didn't stop and let her like inspect it. But I was like, oh, dang, I hope she's okay. Like mentally, <laughs> you know, take her for an exorcism. <laughs> Jeez. One last little thing I'll say. I'm just kind of following along with you guys here. According to Lionel, his dad, Dahmer was oddly thrilled by the sound that Bones made. And he called them his fiddlesticks. That story goes back to when they first moved to Ohio and his dad was cleaning out kind of the bottom of their house under the house. And he had some dead animals. And when he gathered them up, he put the bones in a bucket. And as he carried that bucket, Jeffrey just lit up. Wow. So we're seeing these signs very early on in this kid. Now I'm from the country, dude. So it's kind of weird, but like some redneck kids, friends of mine, like if we were walking through the woods and we found a deer skull, like we would keep it. Cause that was kind of cool, but he took it to a whole new level. Like he was taking animals and putting their heads on sticks. Jeez. That's completely different. Like he actually decapitated some of the animals himself. And then he put some of the animals in formaldehyde as a way to preserve them. And, you know, I get children are interested, but that's like a whole new level. That's pretty extreme. And we mentioned his alcoholism. He actually started drinking as early as age 13 and by all accounts, he was a full-fledged alcoholic throughout high school. We live in a place where substance abuse is rampant. I've never seen a full-fledged alcoholic in high school. I've had kids drink at parties, right? but not an alcoholic. He, he would keep it in his locker and stop between classes and get a couple shots. He would always have a flask of some kind huh. of whiskey. And it was seemed to be pretty well known. And I mean, even when I was in high school, which wasn't when Dahmer was like, nobody cared what you did in the hallways. You were just don't bother anybody. So yeah. nobody picked up on it or at least nobody intervened. Unless I missed it. I don't think they really focused on that uh, on the Netflix show. I don't recall him being drunk at all. So that's an interesting quality, I guess you'd say about him. Yeah. And you would think with some of these personality traits that he would be a reserved guy, but he was actually involved in high school. He was on the tennis team. Mm. He was involved in the band and he was like the class clown. He acted out to get attention. Really? Yeah. And, and I think like knowing what all I know about him, that's counterintuitive. I would think that he would be 
a recluse staying in sure. his house all the time, not getting involved, but quite the opposite. But he didn't have close friends, but he was in the public enough that people associated him as a normal teenager. But that is the opposite of true as well. Yeah, sure. Of course. So he actually gained popularity in 1977 while he was working for his school newspaper because he landed an interview with the vice president of the United States. How does Jeffrey Dahmer get access to the vice president of the U.S.? Walter Mondale at the time. Yeah, he was able to get everybody from the paper to meet him. They had a meal together and got an interview, and he was the hero of the entire school. I think that was his junior year. Secret Service didn't vet this kid very well. (laughs) They they did not. No kidding, right? Wow. So now he's uh, 14 years old, so the the back half of of middle school or junior high or whatever. And this is when he starts having these fantasies that ultimately he's going to carry out. I know hormones are rampant. Teenagers talk about sex. Some teenagers are having sex. There are different fantasies, but Jeffrey's fantasies that he documented time and time again, involved naked dead males in bed with him and him having complete control over everything he did. And if you talk to anybody about sexual assault, rape, or even killers, they, they talk about control and power. I loved having uh, their life in my hands and seeing the life leave their body or making them do whatever I wanted. And that's what Jeffrey focused on. Those were the fantasies he had. One fantasy he had, there was a guy that would jog by his house almost every day. So he got the idea that I'm going to sneak up behind this guy, hit him in the back of the head, drag him in the house, kill him and have sex with him. And in he that would actually order. hide in the bushes to like make this happen to practice. The day he was ready to execute it, the guy did not go running that day. He took Jeez. it as a sign to skip that one. That that guy saved his own life by being lazy. I wonder I wonder if that guy ever knew how close he was to dying. You yeah, know? That's a crazy thought, man. I'm sure he does. I mean, he I mean, he would know where he, where he ran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is why I never exercised, to be honest. <laughs> he uh <clears throat> he did go into graduate from high school pretty immediately. He found his passion for what he would do with the rest of his life and and murder. Within a few weeks, he had his first ever murder. And I know that he's known for cannibalism. When I was a kid, that was the the phrase. Anytime he talked about somebody being creepy, somebody in a white van, eating something weird, eating somebody, like it's cannibalism. But that wasn't the foundation of his evil. That came later on. What ultimately seemed to drive Dahmer was the, the these sexual fantasies, the curiosity of anatomy, and just that, that desire to be in complete control of another human. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer's first known murder. So his first murder happened just a few weeks, like Jamie said, after he graduated high school. He picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks and took him back to his house to drink some beers and at that time, his parents were going through the divorce, so things were complicated. But that that particular night meant that nobody was home for Dahmer to carry out his plan. And also, like this is why growing up, we were told don't get in the car with strangers because you right. might get in the car with Dahmer. You know, 
but Dahmer and Hicks went back to Dahmer's house and they started drinking. Eventually, whether he was uncomfortable or just wanted to leave, Hicks was ready to go. And Dahmer could not convince him to stay, so he forced him to stay by hitting him in the back of the head with a 10-pound dumbbell. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when it's coming at you forcefully, that's going to knock you out. (laughs) And he continued to beat him with it until he was dead, and this was when he carried out his fantasy. He had sex with Stephen Hicks's dead body. Necrophilia was a big part of what Jeffrey Dahmer did. And then he dissected him. And this isn't just cutting off his limbs so he can dispose of them. This is actually taking a knife and like, if you picture filleting a fish, like getting the the meat off of the bone. Oh my gosh. So that he could completely get rid of it. But that was part of what he loved doing. He that even, was, it, it yeah. was like sexually gratifying to him to see the inside of a human being and to like hear the sound of organs. Oh like my this gosh, dude yeah. was getting off to that. Only comparing it to the Netflix show. They did not go into, into the graphic detail of actually dissecting the, the guy. I had no idea. I mean, and like you said, dude, that is disgusting. I mean, I'm starting to feel like, Oh yeah, it's gross. You know, it is. I don't know how you could do that even in a, a, I don't know, rate it NC 17 or whatever. Like, I don't know how you could do that uh, in an entertaining way. He even had a creative way to get rid of bones. He would put bones in like a sack and take a hammer and beat the bones until they were like powder and then go outside and spread the powder around his backyard. So many people get caught by leaving bones out. This seems like a pretty unfortunately easy way to get rid of them. He did put Hicks, uh, the the rest of the pieces of his body, in, in trash bags. He put the trash bags in his car and took off driving to get rid of them. Now, he had been drinking, and he was pulled over by a police officer. The police officer saw the bags, asked him where he was going, and he said, I'm going to the dump for my mom because she's in a really bad way right now, and I'm going to take all this trash and get rid of it to clean up our house. And the police officer just said, hey, and he cited him for like crossing the yellow line, didn't give him a sobriety test, that the dump's closed, you're going to have to go tomorrow, and let him on his way. Opportunity number one to catch him. How does that happen, man? It just drives me crazy. This guy is pretty well-spoken. Like He doesn't come off as a sicko, even though you know what's going on in his brain now, but at the time, he looked like a normal dude. But like you said, he's drunk. Yeah, and how does he maintain that? And how does he come up with that story on the fly? But people would say, those that survived him, that there was like a switch that flipped. Like he was a normal, fairly charismatic guy. And when he had you where he wanted you, he turned into a completely different person. Right. And got all dark and evil. And for the time after Stephen Hicks, he felt like he kind of exercised his demons and got that out of his system. And his father pushed him to go to college. So he enrolled at The Ohio State University. I mean, they let Jeffrey Dahmer in. I don't know how much more you need to know about them to dislike the Ohio State University. (laughs) But due to his inability to control his alcoholism, he didn't even make it out of his first semester of college. We don't know that he got in any types of trouble, but his grades weren't good. He flunked out of college. And then, again, his dad is a research chemist, has a Ph.D. in chemistry. So he went home to a lot of disappointment for his father. And his father at this point said, I can't help you. Let's see if the military can give you the discipline you need. Because why not teach a psychopath how to even better kill people? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Jeez. <laughs> but once again, his dad is just trying like a loving dad would do. He's trying to get his kid to get his shit together. You know, he doesn't know what's going on here. And this exact scenario happens all the time. Even today, like you're having trouble. Let's let's look at these other opportunities for you to get yeah. a career, to have a path, yeah. but also to, to clean some crap up. 
And we've covered a lot of serial killers and a lot of them go into the army and get discharged because they're crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he was an alcoholic in high school and he didn't go through the 12 steps. So he continued this path as he joined the army. And there's one story about Dahmer getting his entire platoon in trouble during a training exercise and the entire platoon was punished which ultimately resulted in them punishing Dahmer. Like he was assaulted by them later on. It's like a full metal jacket. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly what I picture. What's yeah. that guy's name? Private pile was the guy's name. That's yeah. his nickname. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks man. I couldn't <laughs> think of that. Perfect. Yeah. But he ended up serving as a medic in Germany from 1979 to 1981, which I mean, that has to be right up his alley, right? Again, anatomy getting to see wounds and that kind of thing. It had to kind of feed his urges. I would think his performance in the military by all accounts was described as average, but ultimately his alcohol abuse got the best of him again. And he was discharged. Somehow that was listed as honorable discharge. And he was sent home in March of 1981 because he had failed college. He had been discharged from the army army. Needless to say, his father was not happy when he got home which was now in Ohio. So yeah. looking at his son as a failure, seeing him continue to have a hard time, his father asked him to move out of the house. At this point, I've done everything I can. The most loving thing I can do is to force you to be responsible on your own. And he moved down to Miami, Florida for a while. This is where one of those rumors comes out of, are you familiar with the Adam Walsh case, Chris? I don't think so. Adam Walsh is the son of John Walsh, who was on uh, America's Most Wanted for forever. He was a child, eight or nine years old, in Hollywood, Florida, and he was kidnapped. And later, his decapitated head was found in a creek. And that's what led oh John gosh. Walsh to go on and oh wow to, to start that, that show. Okay, yeah. And they created all kinds of registries for missing children. Decapitated the kid. Decapitated him, yeah. yeah. Nobody was ever caught. Um, but Dahmer was in Florida at this time. So, so many people want to say, and, and Hollywood's oh. less than an hour from Miami. So many people want to relate this to him. You know, this this wasn't his MO. This was a smaller kid. There was really no evidence of sexual abuse. He didn't have a home to take him back to. So there's really not a lot of evidence to attribute that to Dahmer. But there's so many people that just because they were in the same area, and I kind of get it. He was, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, maybe 99% impossible, but... So that's one of the rumors that goes around, but he was in Florida. He was working in a sandwich shop and sleeping on the beach. And finally he called his dad and said, dad, please send me some money. Instead, he sent him a plane ticket. So he moved back to Ohio with his dad. And this is his first arrest. He was in Bath, Ohio, and he was arrested at a Ramada Inn for public intoxication and disorderly conduct. So now his dad's trying to get him into counseling, get him into Alcoholics Anonymous, and Dahmer really wouldn't buy into those things. So Mm. he sent him to move in with his grandmother in West Alice, Wisconsin. Now that's really close to Milwaukee. And that's where most of the story from the documentary takes place. Living with his grandmother was his father thought it would be really strict. And his grandmother was very religious person and she would take him to church. And he was like, well, let my mom try. She raised me and I turned out, okay, maybe she can help with my son, but it really opened the door for Dahmer to get out there and start trying new things. If you want to try them that. And then in Milwaukee at this time, there was a very prominent gay community. Remember, this is the early 80s. I'm not yeah. saying things are perfect now and everybody's welcomed and loved, but it was incredibly unacceptable to be openly gay in the early 1980s, especially in big cities. So in Milwaukee, that forced the community to spend time together 
in kind of small pockets around the city. One of those areas they went to were called bathhouses or bath clubs. And that's essentially a place where there's like saunas, hot tubs, steam rooms, and pools. And the gay community would gather there to meet each other and to spend time together. And Dahmer spent a lot of time at those bathhouses, and that got him in some trouble. Yeah, so there were reports of Jeffrey Dahmer drugging and raping several men in the years after moving in with his grandmother. And he would often lace liquor with sedatives in order to participate in that stuff. But these reports never resulted in legal action, but he was charged with indecent exposure on multiple occasions. However, he was only sentenced to probation on these crimes. I mean, there was a time where he like shown himself to like 20 people at a time. And I think if you do the math, I think it was like $50 or if like and he was fined $50 yeah. for showing himself wow. to like 25 people at a so. state fair, including women and children. So this wasn't like his typical MO, MO after uh, for going for another gay man. But yeah, state fairs. Don't let your kids go alone. And then if you have seen the show on Netflix, there's the famous scene where he camps out and he steals the mannequin. And it yeah. is super creepy. So he takes that thing back home to his grandma's house and he's just having sex with it all the time until his grandma finds it and takes it away. I mean, I I've tried not to try to put together the logistics of how that was happening, but it was certainly a turning point for him when she took that away. So in the meantime, he was working a variety of jobs. One of those was, I mean, I mean, other than mooching off his grandmother, of course, but he worked at a blood bank. Looking back on it, that's pretty creepy in and of itself for this guy. Right. I think in the show they actually had a scene of him drinking blood from a bag. Again, one of the one of the things the show got wrong. I think he may have taken some home and tried it, but he wasn't just drinking blood. Yeah. Not that that's out of character for him, but there's no evidence to suggest that really happened. But then, mm. like we talked about earlier, his longest tenure job was working at the chocolate factory. And even through these indecent exposure charges, like they would have him kind of on probation or parole or whatever. And he still got to keep his job there, even though he was forced to register as a sexual offender. So how you keep your job? I mean, I guess you're working in the chocolate factory, so there's no kids around. But right, still, yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't want to be the employer having this guy around all the time. If Never. It's that weird. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Okay, so when does he start committing more murders and start committing them more frequently? So we're now to the point where he starts his killing spree. He's still living with his grandma. Uh, and this is in November of 1987. And this is when he meets Stephen Toomey at a bar. And this is where he established kind of his MO of offering somebody money or offering them drugs or offering them alcohol to come back with him. And they went back to the Ambassador Hotel in Milwaukee. Now, he gave Toomey some drugs, waited for him to pass out, and then proceeded to rape him, rape his passed out body. He hadn't killed him yet, but he was exploring his body and kind of had, again, that situation of being in control to me was completely out of it. 
Now, what happened next isn't super clear. According to Dahmer, and given he confessed to everything as far as we know, but for this situation, he said that he woke up laying on top of Stephen Toomey. He claimed that his hands and arms were really sore. When he looked at Toomey, he saw that his head had been bashed in as well as his chest. There was blood coming from everywhere. So Dahmer claims that he blacked out and beat Toomey to death after he raped him. With all the other stuff he did and confessed to, I don't know why he would lie about this, but it does seem pretty far-fetched to do that. I, I guess if you're in a drunken rage, but to, to be blacked out and do that. I guess unlikely that he's lying here, but this is really murder victim number two, but this is the beginning of picking up the pace. So he wakes up from this night and there's a freaking dead body in his motel room that he has to get rid of. So he goes and gets a large suitcase and then he forces Toomey's body into it. And then he takes it to his freaking grandma's house. Like, yeah, where else should I dispose of this? Let's take it to Mama's house. So when he got it back, man, he completed a full dissection. He, he basically filleted the flesh off this guy's bones. And because he did that, that allowed him to cut it into really small pieces and put it in trash bags. And then he took the bones again, wrapped them in a sheet and pulverized this with a hammer, basically causing it to turn into a powder or a dust that he could just sprinkle in the backyard. Crazy stuff here, man. Now, as far as we know, he's not cannibalizing yet. Again, we've, we've talked to you before about a lot of killers, Chris, but I, I don't know how he ended up with these sexual fantasies or committing murder but it blows my mind that he made the jump to eating people at some point. Like, gosh, yeah. Is there a line he's not willing to draw? And I, I don't know. But he tries something new with Toomey. He did not bash his skull. He put the rest of Stephen Toomey's uh, body pieces in the trash, and he kept his skull in the bag. He held on to that skull, complete with hair, flesh, and everything, for two weeks before doing anything with it. He just had a head in a bag in his room at his grandmother's house. Then he decided to boil the flesh and hair off of it, discarding everything but the skull itself. Again, he's he's experimented with chemistry, but his solution for ridding the skull of flesh and hair is just to boil it. Like anytime you cook like raw meat and boil it, it's pretty gross anyway. I can't imagine and don't want to what this looked like. Well, I mean, this goes back to his childhood. He was doing this with animal bones and now he's worked his way up to human skulls. So it it really kind of ties back in to that childhood trauma. Oh my gosh, man. Like you said, it just gets worse and worse. Yeah. We're we're not going to like the, the MO becomes what it is. The, the mode of operation, modus operandi, like he, he does the same thing over and over, but we are going to call out some, I guess, more unique victims. Uh, one of his yeah. younger victims was Jamie Dockstater, who disappeared on January 16th of 1998. This was a young Native American boy who was working as a sex worker. And Dahmer act- offered him $50 to come back to Dahmer's apartment. He's now moved out from living with his grandmother to pose for nude photos. So he's just saying, just come back, take your clothes off. Let me take some pictures for $50. Once they got back to the apartment, he drugged the boy, sexually assaulted him, and then strangled him to death. And as far as we know, strangling was really the primary way that that he killed people. There wasn't stabbing, shooting. He loved to do it with his hands because he wanted to be in complete control. Also to note, this is a Native American boy. Almost all of his victims were people of color. So the next victim was 25-year-old Richard Guerrero. He was a Hispanic male. 
Once again, he got Guerrero to come back to his grandma's house by offering him $50 to spend the night. And just like he did with Doc's daughter, Dahmer pretty much completely disposed of the remains of Guerrero. He took a brief break from his normal routine of (laughs) killing because he was dealing with some legal trouble. He was actually caught fondling a 13-year-old boy who has been unnamed, and he did this at the chocolate factory where Dahmer worked. And he was given probation and forced to register as a sex offender, but he got to keep the job at the chocolate factory. And it happened at the factory. Keep this 13-year-old boy in mind. We're going to revisit this a little down the line. And that's really the point where Dahmer's grandmother had enough. She kicked him out. Now, she did not know the full extent of what he was doing. She just saw him as a, as a guy who's continuously drunk, and essentially she didn't trust him anymore. So he was then able to find an apartment on his own on North 24th Street in Milwaukee, and that is the famous apartment. Absolutely. Mm. He had to keep meeting with his probation officer until 1991, but that didn't keep him from killing people in between those times. Anthony Sears was a manager at Baker Square, And this guy had a lot going for him. He was about to get married to his girlfriend. He was saving up money to pursue a modeling career. But it said that Dahmer found him so attractive that after he brought him back to the apartment, drugged him, and strangled him, he kept Sears' genitalia in a jar to preserve it. He actually went to a taxidermist and said, hey, I've got a fox that I've killed. How can I preserve this until I'm ready to mount it? And they said, get some acetone and put it in. So he got some acetone and he preserved the genitals of Anthony Sears in a jar. And we know that it it doesn't get any less insane than this from this point on. This is a rapid, rapid increase of intensity and incident. So if, if, if Anthony was getting ready to marry his girlfriend, why the hell was he hanging out with Dahmer as... You know, I guess obviously he was bisexual or something then, huh? He needed the money. Uh, he was trying yeah. to save money to leave Milwaukee, and he offered him money to take nude food photos. He wasn't saying, gotcha. I'm going to touch you, we're going to have sex. Right, it was just, right, let right. me take, you're really hot, let me take pictures of you, and I'll give you some money, and desperate times, emo, yeah. yeah, desperate measures. It's funny, I've never been approached and asked that question. I don't know <laughs> if my yeah. physique is just not right, I don't know. This is my surprise uh, yeah. face. <laughs> but. But really, man, the timeline here starts to get fuzzy because the murders are happening so quickly. Now, we do know that one of Dahmer's next victims was Ricky Beeks, who sometimes went by Raymond Smith. And at this point, the MO is pretty obvious. Raymer, or Dahmer would get the victims to his apartment however he can, and then he would drug them and kill the victim and then dismember them and potentially ab- sexually abuse the corpse after he had murdered them. But at this point, many believe Dahmer started taking another step in documenting his kills. He would, you know, he's kind of famous in the series and, you know, just in general, he would take Polaroid pictures of the victims as a way to reflect on those kills afterwards and kind of relive those moments of the kills. And he would do that in various stages of the kill from them lying naked, completely uh, alive, but unconscious all the way to dismemberment. Another victim that came up during this time was Eddie Smith, and very little is known about this crime. None of his remains were ever found. But there's a story that was shown in the series that Smith's sister's Caroline actually received a phone call in April of 1991 saying, don't bother looking for your brother. He's dead. And he had been missing at that point for almost an entire year. So you would have to think that Dahmer's the one making this call, but 
that was an interesting uh, note because that's the first time we ever see him reach out to family. And now is where another step forward, I guess, in the insanity that is uh, the Dahmer murders. 22-year-old Ernest Miller, after he was dead, he actually preserved the flesh of Miller's biceps, heart, and liver in his freezer for consumption. This is the first time that we know that he had planned to eat the flesh of a victim. Again, that's Ernest Miller. He also painted the skull to use as a decoration. And when people would come to his apartment, they assumed it was a fake skull that had been painted because he left it out for the public to see. Are his neighbors smelling like the, the weird smells and all that sort of stuff? I'm assuming that probably really happened. Oh, yeah. the His next-door neighbor reported this smell numerous times, and nothing was ever really done about it. And the craziest thing to me, I mean, this is an apartment building, and she even reported hearing chainsaws in the middle of the night, and authorities did nothing. How does that happen? I, it just drives me crazy, man. It drives me crazy. I would think some of it has to come back to this this being an area where there's a high gay population, and the police didn't care as much then. I could be yeah. wrong about that. Neighbors also noted that they never saw him grocery shopping, but he he was always cooking something, which is stomach turning. And I mean, when yeah. she asked him about the smell one time, he said that he'd brought some fish in and it died. Right. He kept saying that or the, the, the meat in his freezer went bad or whatever the hell he was talking about. Yep. So we know that Dahmer confessed to eating the hearts, livers, thighs and biceps of several of his victims. But while we don't have a complete list of his acts of cannibalism, we think this is the first story of him preserving those body parts so that he could ultimately eat them. And after his arrest, when he was asked about why he chose to eat his victims, he would say that this was an obsessive desire and he wanted to control his victims. And he even wanted like when he ate the pieces of flesh, that it was a way for him to possess them permanently. When you think about what all that means, that's an insane thought. And of course, this is what Dahmer is best known for, is the cannibalism of his victims. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So was Jeffrey Dahmer one of the first serial killers to actually eat his victims? We mentioned Nathaniel Barjona earlier. There's Robert Picton up in Canada who was known to potentially put humans in in his grinder and to sell those as sandwiches. There's all kinds of evidence to suggest other people have committed vandalism that or uh, cannibalism, not vandalism, much worse. Mm-hmm. But there's no doubt that Dahmer did this. And we'll we'll talk more about that in a minute, but uh, like I said, the the rest of the victims, I don't want to dismiss their lives as individuals, their their importance, but the the story is really the same for the rest of these individuals. Uh, he took photos. He kept various body parts, eating uh, many of those body parts. But here, here the remainder. Here's the remainder of the list. David Thomas, 23 years old, went missing in September of 1990. Curtis Strotter, 16, February of 1991. Errol Lindsay, 19, April 1991. Tony Hughes, 31, May of 1991. You see it 
continuing to get faster and faster. Another one in May, yeah. Conorak Sensimophone, who we're going to spend a lot of time on here in a minute, was 14, May of 1991. Matt Turner, 20 in June of 91. Jeremiah Weinberger, July of 91. Oliver Lacey, 23 of July of 91, and Joseph Braidholt in July of 1991. But I want to back up to Conorak, and this was shown very clearly in, as it should have been. This is a huge story as part of Dahmer's, I don't know, sickness, and then the best opportunity to stop Dahmer, to catch him. He was caught absolutely, like, red-handed doesn't even explain what happened. So he picked Conorak up at a mall took him back to his apartment, drugged him, assaulted him, and he even injected hydrochloric acid into his frontal lobe, essentially gave him a lobotomy. Now, hydrochloric acid is what it sounds like. It's acid. If you think back to the, uh, if you watch Breaking Bad, the episode where they melted the body, this is the stuff that they used. And he's got barrels of it in his apartment. And if he injects it into your forehead, essentially you become like a zombie. And that's what happened to Conorak here. He did not have the frontal lobe function. He was just a wandering individual. He couldn't communicate. He also couldn't speak English, which wasn't helpful, but completely incapacitated. So Dahmer thought that he was pretty much out of it. And so he left Conorak there and he headed to a bar. Now, when he was on his way back from the bar, he saw Conorak on the street with two women, Sondra Smith and Nicole Childers. I mean, could you imagine leaving this kid thinking he's like, pretty much dead to the world. And then you see him on the street on your way home. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Dahmer tried to convince the women that Conorak was 19 years old. Remember he's only 14. And he said that they were in a relationship. I mean, keep in mind this kid had to be, I mean, he was beaten, bruised, obviously under the influence of something. And he had blood noticeably coming from his anus. So they (sighs) insisted that police were on their way and that they should wait up for them. And and he did. And the police showed up. And unfortunately, like Jamie said, Conorak was unable to speak English. And he was also just very disoriented. Dahmer was able to convince the police that Conorak was his lover. So they let Dahmer take this kid home where he ultimately killed him just like he did all of his other victims. Police on scene and see this kid just beating the hell up. And they let Dahmer take him home with them. No, no, let's analyze this. Obviously, I think if we look into it a little bit deeper, like you mentioned, it's the gay community. Uh, it's obviously a lot of um, ethnic kids. So the cops just don't care. I mean, that, that has to be it. They just don't care. That's my assumption. Yeah. Yeah. The way that Dahmer convinced them they were lovers is that he had Polaroids that he had just taken of Conorak naked after he had drugged him and said, look, look at these photos where we had sex earlier today. See, we're lovers. So he showed them child pornography in order to get away from them. It's just so yeah. disgusting. Yeah, fourteen-year-old kid, and you know, you know. Once again, that's the part we went through this with the Gacy thing too. It just that's the part that really gets to me is that he should have been caught multiple times, but it's specifically this one. I make too much noise in my hotel room. The cops come and they want to arrest me. This guy's. Like you said, child porn, and, and, and they're not even doing a, a freaking word, you know? A victim there with no pants on, bleeding from his bottom. Yeah, it's as, as bad as you can possibly imagine. Yeah, that's as bad as you can possibly imagine, exactly. 
kudos to these women. You can hear the 911 call online. You can also hear statements given by the police where they say, oh, it was just a couple. This was an adult male who found his companion and we've sent them on their way. Like it's disgusting to listen to the police try to justify this. So I also want to note that Conorak is the younger brother of the boy that Dahmer assaulted at chocolate factory. So the 13 year old, he assaulted the chocolate factory was Conorak's older brother. So he had a history with his family and he had been like convicted of fondling his older brother, like the whole it's yeah. So fast forward to July of 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer approached three men and he offered a hundred dollars and free beer for them to come back and take some nude photos and basically just hang out with him. 32 year old Tracy Edwards took him up on the offer. He wasn't interested in having sex with Dahmer, but he was interested in getting a hundred bucks for posing. So they went back to Dahmer's apartment. He refused to take the laced drink. And that's what Dahmer would do. He would say, come back and have some beer. He would bring him a whiskey that had a lot of sleeping medicine in it. And that's the way that he would drug people. But Edwards said, no, I I don't want anything to do with that. Dahmer said, okay, that's fine. And he slapped a handcuff on him. One handcuff on his wrist didn't handcuff him to anything else. So Edwards knew at this point, this isn't where I need to be. I need to get out of here. So they pretended to just kind of hang out. Uh, They were drinking beer and they were watching the exorcist part three, which is apparently Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie. Now, There came a point when Edward noticed that Dahmer was distracted. So he punched Dahmer in the face and bolted for the door. He was able to get out of the apartment, get out of the building and find a police officer. And when they got back to Dahmer's apartment, that was essentially the end of Dahmer's run as a serial killer. The police asked to come in due to the smell of the hydrochloric acid. And they called for backup immediately upon seeing a place that you just could not imagine. Yeah, and not only did they smell the acid, but they could smell the dead bodies inside of the apartment. That big barrel in there had bodies in it. So they found hundreds of photos that were taken in different stages of murder and dissection of the victims. There was human meat and body parts in the fridge and freezer. Jamie mentioned there were skulls. There were multiple skulls laying around as decoration. And there were like pots where you would normally keep plants. And some of them contained human hands, and some of them had human genitalia in them that had been preserved in acetone. If you watch the series, you kind of see he readily confesses to everything that he has done. And that's exactly how it actually happened in real life. He told police that he got the victims to come back. He would distract them and documented everything with the Polaroids and would ultimately have sex with their dead bodies. I mean, he gave them the investigation. They had everything they needed in the apartment and his confession. So after the investigation was complete, there was enough evidence to charge Dahmer with 15 murders. And he pled guilty, but by reason of insanity. I mean, long story kind of short, he was found guilty and sentenced to 941 years in prison. And then later he would be convicted of Stephen Hicks' murder and given another life sentence where he had obviously didn't, I mean, this didn't make a difference in his sentence, but it is worth noting that Stephen Hicks got justice there. And in the show, the scenes of Evan Peters in the courtroom as Dahmer were just so eerie. If you put those beside pictures of Dahmer actually in the courtroom, they did such a great job of recreating the scene and Evan Peters did an awesome job of portraying him. I wonder what that was like trying to get in the yeah. mind of Dahmer to say those lines and, and have that demeanor. 
I, you think that was psychologically like negative to Evan Peters to have to play that role? Yeah, just to drop into that character in all way, shape, or form, you know, that's a dark role to have to play. And we've seen it before. I mean, Heath Ledger had to go to Dark Place just to play a mythical character, but you're playing a real guy here. And Dahmer, after he was sentenced, he just lived two and a half more years. He was in prison November 28th of 1994. He was beaten to death by fellow inmate Christopher Sarver. So that was the end of his life. He was attacked, and, and we know that a lot of times people that go to prison that have sexually assaulted people, especially kids become targets for other inmates right. and kind of surprised he lasted two and a half years, but that was the end of Dahmer. And I think what got this conversation started, Chris was the, like you said, the Netflix show, it was really accurate. I've, I took down a couple of things that they got wrong. One is I think there's a scene where they show the police officers getting honored. They ultimately got suspended for letting Dahmer go when they found that out, they okay. did eventually get their jobs back. But they, by all means, were not given Officer of the Year awards from from what I could find out. And I've heard that I a few different places. I wonder why they put that in there. That was strange, yeah. I think it was probably just to, I don't know, like highlight how blind the system was to what was happening. Uh, Ronald Flowers, there's a scene where his grandma walks in and finds him with a guy. And that was Ronald Flowers. And the the show portrays it as if grandma catching him is why he didn't kill Ronald Flowers. But as it turns right. out... He was just a bigger guy. He wasn't in the show, but in real life, he was a bigger guy. And Dahmer didn't think he could move his body if he killed him. So that's why he decided not to do that. There are a lot of locks on his door in the apartment. That wasn't really the case. That was just there for to add some trauma. And there were a lot of lawsuits against his dad. Um, that that comes up in the show as well. There are only two families that like followed through with that. We don't know the results, but... How awful is that for him to have to sit and go through it and then get sued for something your your son did? Well, yeah. And like we said, he still was trying to help his son as much as possible. Just the, the whole thing. And, and also, too, I found, I'm sure this probably really happened. Dahmer was so uh, succinct and so candid about what he did. He was very calm about it. And I did this and, and I, you know, I have issues and I'm sick and all these other things. It wasn't like he was trying to deny anything. He just agreed, you know, and admitted to everything. Right. He did. And he was also very clear of, I think a direct quote was, I don't understand how other killers blame their families. This was me. I did this. You can't blame my dad, but he said it so calm, like sounded collected. And so matter of factly talking about these awful things that he did that most people cringe to think about. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. ask you about about the the concept of the show itself because there's a lot of people that are you know the the victims they didn't know it was being made and all that sort of stuff and i I see the point of having to this is your family and now they're portraying these there's actors playing them and and kind of having to go through it all over again it seems kind of unfair to to the victims families you know Yeah, they've spoken out about that and being re-traumatized. And I've tried to give that some thought. I mean, our show, we talk about murders every week. We talk about 
families that have gone through things like this and we put it out on our on our show and people listen to it and we try to be really accurate and empathetic as not to over simplify things but i think there's a line between telling stories that we can learn from even telling stories to entertain and then glorifying or over promoting these actions john did you give right. him that some thought as you watched it like was this necessary to make do we need to be telling these stories like that unfortunately blood and sex sales and Dahmer is the story of both. Right. So, but at the same time, what line is there between making this show and also being empathetic towards the victims families? Ultimately, I'm glad I didn't have to make that decision, yeah. but this has been a very popular series on Netflix and, and you're going to see more and more of these shows pop up yeah. with serial killers involved. And, and I mean, it is traumatic for the families, but I don't know where that line is, but, Ultimately, I do. I mean, we do a show every week, so we've crossed that line, right? Right. So, and yeah. they and they didn't glamorize it. If anything, they held back on some facts about some families. Like it was really accurate right. and really well done, and stayed away from some of the more graphic scenes. So maybe in some ways it helps. It'll help people to be more careful. You know what I mean? Like it's just. And and once again, this will probably never happen again because the way the world has changed. Even though it was 1991, that might as well be in the 50s with cell phones and internet and all this other stuff that exists now. I'm not going to say that it won't happen again, but it'd be a lot harder for a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer to do these things in the modern era. Yeah, it would be. And I mean, just to think about that, we talked about that the other night. This was, he was arrested in the nineties. This isn't the Zodiac. This isn't like the fifties and sixties. Like you, you were wrestling when this happened. Like this was in, in, in your adult life. So this was a lot Closer to modern day than I think we usually think about when we think about Dahmer. It makes me want to teach my kids to trust your gut. Like if you're in a place like a bar and somebody approaches you with something crazy like this, trust your gut. Yeah. Get the heck out of there. Fight or flight, right? It's interesting because I was going to say this earlier. There's a, a venue in Milwaukee called The Rave. And right across the street is the hotel. Not grandma's house and not the, the apartment building, but there was a couple murders that occurred in the hotel. That hotel is still there, and it's basically within view of the Eagles, or the, the Rave. And you can you always say, oh, that's the hotel. That's the Dahmer Hotel. So just like you said, these buildings are, are still here. You can still look at them, you know, and see them. I remember uh, some from my research, some of the family me- members, they like Dahmer's estate was given to his victims' families. And they thought about auctioning off things in the apartment to make money, but then they chose not to. But like, it's awful. But in the world we live in, like people would pay yeah. an unreal amount of money for the fridge that contained the head and oh sure and stuff. So like, I, just, I understand not wanting to do it, but at the same time, like it's going to sell because we're crazy just, people. Just like he said when he's in jail, my fans think I'm cool or whatever the hell he said. You know, my fans love me, and it's like people are attracted to these types of, of, of monsters, you know, there's some sick people out there that would want Dahmer's autograph or want some of his memorabilia. As we start to wind down, there's, there's a part in the Netflix show where a guy bought all the, all the, the stuff so that people couldn't sell it. Did that really happen? As far as I know, it did. I do think it's, yeah. it, it's part of a private collection now so that people can't make money off of it. But I don't think the right. victim's family got a lot from that. It's a big market out there. And who's the, who's to say if he falls on hard times, he's not going to sell it. But there are all kinds of things out there from, from various killers that go for hundreds of thousands of dollars sure. every year. And 
I, I would have to think that this stuff is so out there and so identifiable that it would have a huge market. If you're ever in Tennessee, down in uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, the Gatlinburg, Smoky Mountains yeah. area, there's a museum called Alcatraz where they have collector's items from serial killers and you pay oh, money wow. crime to museum. go in there and yeah. see them. It's the crime museum. Is there, um, w- was there uh, the fact where they wanted to examine his brain and the father said no? Did that really happen as well? As far as I know, it did. Uh, yeah. Because again, this was, there was no significant trauma that we associate with other killers. He had the operation. His mother had some medication, but they weren't allowed to study his brain. We see that now with any like athletes that pass away. Let's study and find CTE, any kind of when an addict passes away. Let's, yeah. So that's, that's more prominent now. I think if that had happened in 2015, then his dad would have been more likely. But back then that was a little bit more taboo. Uh, but yeah, his father wouldn't allow that again, just trying to take care of his son till he couldn't anymore. Well, I mean, with all the, the, the research and all the shows you've done, I mean, is there, I'm sure there's, I didn't want to ask the question, but is Dahmer the worst, one of the worst? He's definitely in my top five. I think yeah. of, when I think of the worst of the worst, I think about Bar Jonah. I think about Jeffrey Dahmer and BTK uh, because he was a, just like Dahmer, a man living a fairly normal life. He had a family and everybody thought everything was great. But then at night he was leaving his family home to go murder people. Yeah. That was Dennis Rader. Yeah. Bind, torture, kill was what BTK stood for. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are different factors to look at, like how evil is somebody in their intention? How, uh, how graphic were their crimes? And then what was the, like the body count? I think as far as graphically and the things that he did, nobody did worse things yeah. to people than Dahmer did. Keeping the genitalia, you know, all that sort of stuff. The fact that, you know, just the, the, the hydrochloric acid in the head. And his idea was to turn these people just into zombies, zombie sex slaves that would just be sitting there and, we could do whatever we wanted with him. And that sort of stuff is just a fate worse than death, you know? And he yeah. would put body parts in the barrels and it would turn into like a sludge. And then he would yeah. flush that sludge down the toilet to get rid of it. So he essentially didn't have to dispose of body parts outside of his apartment anymore. But like, I think back to that mannequin, he got that and that did it for a while. He wanted a, an actual human being mannequin. So yeah, he could right. do whatever he wanted to, but it was an actual human. So it's crazy to see the progression of his insanity. Well, guys, uh, always interesting talking with you, John and Jamie from true crime cast. And like I said, it's, it's a, it makes me feel really disgusted to have to discuss this, but hopefully, like you said, maybe in some way, shape or form, this will help somebody follow your instincts and your guts and don't, uh, go to strangers apartments ever. (laughs) Yeah. We share these stories so people can learn from it. And I know it's hard to watch, but hopefully, yeah, somebody gets something out of it. Well, I appreciate you guys, man, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. You always have interesting uh, takes on on some of these horrible people, like you said, and and maybe we'll all learn something from it. So I appreciate you guys joining us again. Thanks for having us.